European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 43, Issue 36. Focus Issue, Heart Failure and Cardiomyopathies. By Editor-in-Chief, Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Pulmonary hypertension, sarcoidosis and inflammatory and dilated cardiomyopathy. New light shed on prevalence, mechanisms and treatment. This is a focus issue on heart failure and cardiomyopathies. The issue opens with a clinical research article on pulmonary embolism or PE. In this article entitled Chronic Thromboembolic Pulmonary Hypertension and Impairment after pulmonary embolism, the focus study. Luca Valerio and colleagues from the University Medical Center of the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany, sought to systematically assess late outcomes of acute PE and to investigate the clinical implications of post-PE impairment, or PPEI, fulfilling prospectively defined criteria. A prospective multicenter observational cohort study was conducted in 17 large-volume centres across Germany. Consecutive adult patients with confirmed acute symptomatic PE were followed with a standardised assessment plan and predefined visits at 3, 12 and 24 months. The co-primary outcomes were 1. A diagnosis of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or CTEF, and 2. PPEI, a combination of persistent or worsening clinical, functional, biochemical and imaging parameters during follow-up. A total of 1,017 patients, 45% women, median age 64 years, were included in the primary analysis. They were followed for a median duration of 732 days after PE diagnosis. CTEF was diagnosed in 16, or 1.6% of patients, after a median of 129 days. The estimated two-year cumulative incidence was 2.3%, 1.2% to 4.4%. Overall, 880 patients were available for PPEI. The two-year cumulative incidence was 16%, 95% confidence interval, 12.8% to 20.8%. The PPEI helped to identify 15 of the 16 patients diagnosed with CTEF during follow-up, hazard ratio, or HR, for CTEF versus no CTEF, 393. Patients with PPEI had a higher risk of re-hospitalisation and death, as well as worsening quality of life compared with those without PPEI. The authors conclude that the cumulative two-year incidence of CTEF is 2.3%, but PPEI diagnosed by standard criteria is frequent. These findings support systematic follow-up of patients after acute PE and may help to optimise guideline recommendations and algorithms for post-PE care. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Irena Lang and Tyler Artner from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. The authors highlight three issues. First, focus confirms the study of Pengo et al., suggesting that higher-risk PE, SPESI less than zero intermediate high risk, carries a higher likelihood of becoming CTEF. Consequently, a focus-style clinical follow-up of elderly intermediate to high-risk PE serves as a model follow-up 
and should be recommended. Second, a comprehensive clinical follow-up is needed, rather than a single test such as echocardiography or cardiopulmonary exercise testing, or CPET, alone. Third, the Focus Biosex substudy was initiated with prospective standardised pre-processing of plasma, serum and urine with short-term storage of minus 80 degrees centigrade. Shipped, indexed and quality-controlled biomaterials, proteins, DNA and RNA, from approximately 350 unselected patients have been stored long-term in a centralised 2D barcoded and mirrored biobank at minus 80 degrees centigrade which represents an invaluable biological resource that has never been collected before. Pulmonary hypertension, or PH, is a complex disease with multiple causes, a variable, but frequently poor prognosis and limited forms of treatment. The presence of PH severely aggravates the clinical course of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. In a clinical research article entitled Riosaguit in pulmonary hypertension with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The hemodynamic trial. Teresa, Mary, Dax and colleagues from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria note that to date neither established heart failure therapies nor pulmonary vasodilators proved beneficial in this setting. This phase 2b randomized double-blind placebo-controlled parallel group trial investigated the efficacy of chronic treatment with the oral-soluble guanulate cyclase, or SGC stimulator, riosaguit, in patients with PH, HEFPEF. Key eligibility criteria were mean pulmonary artery pressure, greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury, pulmonary arterial wedge pressure, greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, and left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, greater than or equal to 50%. Patients were randomized to oral treatment with riosaguit or placebo, one-to-one. -one. Patients started at 0.5 mg three times daily and were up-titrated to 1.5 mg three times daily. The primary efficacy endpoint was changed from baseline to week 26 in cardiac output, or CO, at rest, measured by right heart catheterization. Primary efficacy analyses were performed on the full analysis set. 58 patients received riosaguit and 56 patients placebo. After 26 weeks, CO increased by 0.37 plus or minus 1.263 litres per minute in the riosaguit group and decreased by 0.11 plus or minus 0.921 litres per minute in the placebo group. Least squares mean difference, 0.54 litres per minute, P equaling 0.0142. Five patients dropped out due to riosaguit-related adverse events, but no riosaguit-related serious adverse event or death occurred. The authors conclude that the vasodilator riosaguit improves hemodynamics in pH HEFPEF. Riosaguit is safe in most patients, but leads to more dropouts as compared with placebo. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Johann Bauersachs and Karen Olsen from the Hanover Medical School in Germany. Bauersachs and Olsen confirm that all in all, dynamic does not suggest that riosaguit will be a panacea for patients with PH-HEFPEF.
Nevertheless, further studies exploring the safety and efficacy of SGC stimulators may be warranted, particularly in patients with combined post- and precapillary pulmonary hypertension, or CPC-PH-HEFPEF. As there were no established surrogate endpoints for this condition, Phase II studies will provide limited information, and larger Phase III studies focusing on patient-relevant endpoints seem more appropriate. Otherwise, the development of treatment for PH-HEFBEF will continue to be more static than dynamic. PH and pulmonary vascular disease, or PVD, are common and associated with adverse outcomes in left heart disease, or LHD. In a clinical research article entitled Pulmonary Vascular Disease in Pulmonary Hypertension Due to Left Heart Disease, Pathophysiological Implications, Kazunori Omote and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic and Foundation in Rochester, Minnesota, USA, sought to characterize the pathophysiology of PVD across the spectrum of pH in LHD. Patients with pH-LHD, mean pulmonary artery or PA pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, and PA wedge pressure or PAWP greater than or equal to 15 millimeters of mercury, and controls free of pH or LHD underwent invasive hemodynamic exercise testing with simultaneous echocardiography, expired air and blood gas analysis, and lung ultrasound in a prospective study. Patients with pH-LHD were divided into isolated postcapillary pH, or IPC-PH, and CPC-PH based on pulmonary vascular resistance, PVR less than 3.0, or greater than or equal to 3.0 wood units, or WU. As compared with controls, N equaling 69, and IPC-PH-LHD, N equaling 55, participants with CPC-PH-LHD, N equaling 40, displayed poorer left atrial function and more severe right ventricular, or RV, dysfunction at rest. With exercise, patients with CPC-PH-LHD displayed similar PAWP to those with IPC-PH-LHD for more severe RVPA uncoupling, greater ventricular interaction, and more severe impairments in cardiac output, O2 delivery, and peak O2 consumption. Despite higher PVR, participants with CPC-PH developed more severe lung congestion compared with both IPCPH LHD and controls, which was associated with lower arterial O2 tension, reduced alveolar ventilation, decreased pulmonary O2 diffusion, and greater ventilation perfusion mismatch. The authors conclude that pulmonary vascular disease in LHD is associated with a distinct pathophysiological signature, marked by greater exercise induced lung congestion, arterial hypoxemia. RVPA uncoupling, ventricular interdependence, and impairment in O2 delivery, impairing aerobic capacity. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Marius Hooper from the Hanover Medical School in Mainz, Germany, and Stefan Rosenkranz from the Cologne Cardiovascular Research Center, CCRC, Germany. The authors note that in a seminal paper published in 1952, Paul Wood wrote in the section on mitral stenosis that the increased resistance on the arterial side protected the pulmonary venous system from developing unduly high pressures on exertion and excitement, 
Thus, symptoms due to pulmonary venous congestion were far less evident in this group. The protection afforded by this type of pulmonary hypertension is at the expense of a diminished cardiac output and excessive strain on the right ventricle. Thus, patients complained about fatigue and tended to develop functional tricuspid incompetence and congestive heart failure. Wood continued stating that clinically active or protective pulmonary hypertension of this sort could be recognised in cases of mitral stenosis by the following features. 1. Cessation of pulmonary congestive symptoms, including pulmonary edema. Upper and Rosenkrantz conclude that the pathophysiology of HF is complex, especially during exercise, and even 70 years after Paul Wood published his observations, we still do not fully understand it. Thanks to advanced technologies and clinical researchers capable of using and interpreting them, we are making further progress. It is well recognised that sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors improve the outcomes of HF. Empagliflozin is known to reduce serum uric acid or SUA, but the relevance of this effect in patients with HF is unclear. In a clinical research article entitled Uric Acid and Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibition with Empagliflozin in Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction The Emperor Reduced Trial Wolfram Döner and colleagues from the Charité Universitätsmedizin in Berlin, Germany aim to investigate the effect of empagliflozin on SUA levels and the therapeutic efficacy of empagliflozin in relation to SUA. The association between SUA and the composite primary outcome of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for worsening HF, its components, and all-cause mortality was investigated in 3,676 patients of the EMPRA-reduced trial, 98.6% of the study cohort. The treatment effect of empagliflozin was studied in relation to SUA as the continuous variable, to clinical hyperuricemia, SUA greater than 5.7 mg per deciliter for women, greater than 7.0 mg per deciliter for men, and in subgroups of patients of tertiles of SUA. Hyperuricemia was prevalent in 53% of patients with no sex differences. Elevated SUA, highest tertile, mean SUA 9.38, plus or minus 1.49 mg per deciliter, was associated with advanced severity of HF and with the worst outcomes. Composite outcome HR 1.64, cardiovascular mortality HR 1.98, all-cause mortality HR 1.8, all P being less than 0.001, in multivariate adjusted analyses as compared with the lowest tertile. SUA was reduced following treatment with empagliflozin at four weeks versus placebo, minus 1.12 plus or minus 0.04 milligrams per deciliter, P being less than 0.0001, and remained lower throughout follow-up with a similar reduction in all pre-specified subgroups. Empagliflozin reduced events of clinically relevant hyperuricemia, acute gout, gouty arthritis, or initiation of anti-gout therapy by 32%, HR 0.68, P equaling 0.004. The beneficial effect of empagliflozin on the primary endpoint was interdependent of baseline SUA, 
HR 0.76, P being less than 0.001, and of the change in SUA at four weeks, HR 0.81, P equaling 0.012. As a hypothesis-generating finding, an interaction between SUA and treatment effect suggested a benefit of empagliflozin on mortality, cardiovascular and all-cause mortality, in patients with elevated SUA, P for interaction equaling 0.005 and 0.011 respectively. The authors conclude that hyperuricemia is common in HF and is an independent predictor of advanced disease severity and increased mortality. Empagliflozin induces a rapid and sustained reduction in SUA levels and of clinical events related to hyperuricemia. The benefit of empagliflozin on the primary outcome is observed independently of SUA. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Isla McKenzie and Thomas MacDonald from the University of Dundee in the United Kingdom. The authors conclude that the place of empagliflozin or dapagliflozin therapy in patients already treated for gout but without HF could also be explored further. Perhaps future studies could investigate whether these SGLT2 inhibitors would improve outcomes in patients with treated gout and high cardiovascular risk. Added to best gout prophylaxis therapy, SGLT2 inhibitors may improve gout outcomes in the most common inflammatory arthritis in men. Might they also improve cardiovascular outcomes? Sarcoidosis is a systemic granulomatous disease of unknown cause with various clinical presentations that can affect any organ. Cardiac sarcoidosis, or CS, is considered to be clinically apparent in only 5% of patients with systemic sarcoidosis. However, cardiac granulomas are found more often at autopsy. Indeed, recent advances in cardiac imaging techniques such as cardiac magnetic resonance or CMR imaging and F-fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography or FDG-PET have shown high accuracy for detecting CS. According to the studies using CMR and FDG-PET, cardiac involvement is more common than indicated in previous reports, with a rate as high as 30%. Although contemporary data suggests that survival may not be as poor as previously thought, patients with CS are known to have a poorer prognosis than patients with sarcoidosis without cardiac involvement. However, the characteristics and prognosis of patients with CS have yet to be clarified, as there are a few multicenter studies with a limited number of patients in each study. In a clinical research article entitled Risk Stratification of Patients with Cardiac Sarcoidosis, the Illuminate CS Registry. Takaru Nabata and colleagues from the Kitasato University School of Medicine in Sagamehara, Japan, evaluated the prognosis and prognostic factors of patients with cardiac CS. Patients from a retrospective multicenter registry diagnosed with CS between 2001 and 2017 based on the 2016 Japanese Circulation Society or 2014 Heart Rhythm Society criteria were included. The primary endpoint was a composite of all-cause death, hospitalization for HF, and documented fatal ventricular arrhythmia events or FVAE, each constituting exploratory endpoints. 
Among 512 registered patients, 148 combined events, 56 HF hospitalizations, 99 documented FVAE, and 49 all-cause deaths were observed during a median follow-up of 1,042 days, interquartile range 518 to 1,917. The 10-year estimated event rates for the primary endpoint, all-cause death, HF hospitalizations and FVAE were 48, 18, 21 and 32% respectively. On multivariable Cox regression, a history of ventricular tachycardia, or VT, or fibrillation, HR 2.53, P being less than 0.001, log-transformed brain natriuretic peptide, or BNP levels, HR 1.28, P equaling 0.008, LVEF, HR 0.94 per 5% increase, P equaling 0.046, and post-diagnosis radiofrequency ablation for VT, HR 2.65, P equaling 0.045, independently predicted the primary endpoint. The authors conclude that although mortality is relatively low in CS, adverse events are common, mainly due to FVAE. Patients with low LVEF, with high BNP levels, with VT stroke fibrillation history and requiring ablation to treat VT, are at high risk. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Benjamin Mader and Jan Kohlemann from the University of Heidelberg in Germany. The authors conclude that no prospective, randomised and controlled clinical trial has hitherto been published for CS. Recently, some trials comparing different immunosuppressive therapy regimes have been initiated with results to be awaited with great expectation in the coming years. In a clinical research article entitled Immunosuppressive Therapy in Virus-Negative Inflammatory Cardiomyopathy 20-year follow-up of the TIMIC trial Christina Cimenti and colleagues from the Sapienza University of Rome, Italy evaluated long-term results of the Tailored Immunosuppression in Virus-Negative Inflammatory Cardiomyopathy or TIMIC trial. 85 patients with endomyocardial biopsy-proven virus-negative chronic inflammatory cardiomyopathy were enrolled in the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled TIMIC trial and received prednisone and azathioprine, N equaling 43, or placebo, N equaling 42, for six months. Immunosuppressive treatment promoted an improvement in cardiac function in 88% of the cases compared with none of the patients in the placebo group, which were switched to a six-month immunosuppressive therapy at the end of the six-month study period. Long-term, up to 20 years, clinical outcomes of the whole cohort of 85 patients originally enrolled in the TIMIC trial, these being Group A, were compared with those of a 1-2 to two propensity score-matched control cohort of patients untreated with the TIMIC protocol, these being Group B, and followed for a comparable period of time. The primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death and heart transplantation. At long-term follow-up, the risk of cardiovascular death, HR 6.77, and heart transplantation, HR 7.92, were significantly higher in Group B patients. Group A showed a persistent improvement in the LVEF compared with Group B, HR 7.24. 
a higher number of Group B patients underwent implantable cardioverter defibrillator implantation. The incidence of recurrent myocarditis was similar between groups, and patients with evidence of a recurrent cardiac inflammatory process promptly responded to a TIMIC protocol application. The authors conclude that virus-negative inflammatory cardiomyopathy benefits from immunosuppressive therapy even after long-term follow-up. Recurrence appears to respond to a new TIMIC protocol application. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Heinz-Peter Schultheis from the Department of Cardiology Institute of Cardiac Diagnostics and Therapy and Felicitas Escher from the Charité Universitätsmedizin Berlin in Germany. The authors highlight the two most important lessons learned from the TIMIC study. First, a specific and causal treatment adapted to endomyocardial biopsy, or EMB-based pathophysiologically characterized cardiomyopathy forms, leads to a significant clinical improvement and a better prognosis of the patients. Secondly, an individual and more differentiated selection of the therapeutic candidates is required in this setting. The path to disease-specific, causal and personalized treatment requires in-depth clinical, immunological and virological phenotyping, including differential immune response testing with accurate immune cell typing and identification of novel biomarkers, e.g. TLR3-TLR4, microRNA profiling, cytokine measurements, specific high titer autoantibody types, as well as gene expression profiling. This is the prerequisite for specific individualized immunosuppressive or antiviral treatment, future microRNA-based strategies, or targeted cytokine treatment. To address this clinical need, advanced diagnostics and guidelines are required to optimize the management of this disease using a personalized treatment strategy. The issue also contains the translational research article Serin Biosynthesis as a Novel Therapeutic Target for Dilated Cardiomyopathy by Isaac Perea Gill and colleagues from the Stanford University School of Medicine in California, USA. Using patient-specific induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, carrying a pathogenic TNNT2 gene mutation, P.R183W, and CRISPR-based genome editing, a faithful dilated cardiomyopathy, or DCM model, in vitro was developed. An unbiased phenotypic screening in TNNT2 mutant iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes, or iPSC-CMs, with small molecule kinase inhibitors, or SMKIs, was performed to identify novel therapeutic targets. Two SMKIs, GO6976 and SB203580, were discovered whose combinatorial treatment rescued contractile dysfunction in DCM IPSC CMs carrying gene mutations of various ontologies TNNT2, TTN, LMNA, PLN, TPM1, and LAMA2. The combinatorial SMKI treatment upregulated the expression of genes that encode serine, glycine, and one-carbon metabolism enzymes and significantly increased the intercellular levels of glucose-derived serine and glycine in DCM-IPSC-CMs. 
Furthermore, the treatment rescued the mitochondrial respiration defects and increased the levels of the tricarboxylic acid cycle metabolites and ATP in DCM IPSC CMs. Finally, the rescue of the DCM phenotypes was mediated by the activating transcription factor 4, or ATF4, and its downstream effector genes, phosphoglycerate dehydrogenase, or PHGDH, which encodes a critical enzyme of the serin biosynthesis pathway and triples 3, or TRIB3, a pseudokinase with pleiotropic cellular functions. The authors conclude that a phenotypic screening platform using DCM IPSC CMs was established for therapeutic target discovery. A combination of SMKIs ameliorated contractile and metabolic dysfunction in DCM IPSC CMs mediated via the ATF4 dependent serin biosynthesis pathway. Together, these findings suggest that modulation of serin biosynthesis signaling may represent a novel genotype agnostic therapeutic strategy for genetic DCM. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Thomas Eschenhagen from the University Medical Center Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany. Eschenhagen notes that the present study is an excellent example of how to harness the potential of human IPSC technology. It provides exciting evidence for a novel therapeutic target that even if it will not be the exact combination of kinase inhibitors, could be directly addressed by small molecule inhibitors. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In an article entitled Atrial Functional Assessment at Rest and During Exercise Stress in Left Ventricular Diastolic Dysfunction, Doran Backhaus and Andreas Schuster from the University Medical Center Göttingen in Germany, comment on the previous publication entitled Cardiac Magnetic Resonance Identifies Raised Left Ventricular Filling Pressure Prognostic Implications by Pankaj Garg from the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. Pankaj Garg et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.